Good morning, Covenant Church. My name is Pastor Nick. I'm the Community Life Pastor here, and uh, I have the privilege and honor of wrapping up uh, the Kingdom of Heaven series that we've been going over over the last couple of weeks. Uh, If you've been tracking with us, or maybe you're just tuning in for the very first time, we've been taking a look at what Jesus taught about the kingdom that he brought. And so when Jesus came to earth, yes, he came with a mission to to go to the cross, to give his life for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. He rose from the dead, establishing his, uh, the life, eternal life that he has within himself. But also, one of the main things that he taught was about this kingdom that he was bringing to bear. And that it is here and now, and will be fully consummated when he comes again. That's what the scriptures teach us. The very first week, I'll just do a really quick recap here. The very first week we talked about we know that Jesus is king because of what he did. Then we look at the miracles uh, that are told to us in the Gospels, that these things point to who he, he is, his identity as the true king of the universe, the true king that will reign in eternity. And so while sometimes these miracles uh, can be prescriptive, they're not really meant for that. They're really to point to the identity of who Jesus is, and they help cast our eyes on him. The second week we took a look at How is it that we enter into the kingdom of heaven? And how do we live in that kingdom? It's predominantly through hearing. That we have hearts and ears that are bent to hear the king. What he says about us, what he says about himself, how he teaches us and guides us in how to live. That life in the kingdom is about hearing first. And then last week we took a look at what does it mean to obey the king? Why do we obey the king? And what does that look like? And this week we're going to take a look at the power of the kingdom the glory of this kingdom. I mean, everything that we live for today is for the glory of something for tomorrow. Everything that we begin to pursue or we give our lives to is because we're hopeful that a future will unfold before us. We hope that our life is headed to some sort of trajectory of a future glory, of of a future beauty, and that the God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, has a future of beauty and a future glory. In 1968, there was this movie called The Green Berets that came out, and it uh, featured John Wayne. Uh, John Wayne was kind of at the end of his career, but he still was kind of the machismo, like, you know, Hollywood, kind of iconic figure of American rugged individualism and strength and courage. And so they casted John Wayne for this movie uh, for Green Berets because it really was kind of a, a propaganda for the Vietnam War. The hope was that young men would see this movie, and would then choose to enlist and sign up to give their lives to fight another war against communism. You see, World War II was a generation before, and now this new emerging generation had their war to fight, their glory to be gained. Well, if you know anything about American history, you know that the Vietnam War ended up souring uh, amongst these young men, amongst, amongst our whole culture. I mean, you go 10 years later to a movie like Apocalypse Now, and you see actually how we perceived the Vietnam War. It was not as glorious as it was made out to be. But these young men were enlisting because the promise was, hey, give your life. Yeah, there's sacrifice, but give your life because you know what? There's a group of people that are oppressed halfway around the world, and we must overcome communism because it's this evil, and we're this good, and that was the way it was portrayed. Give your life for the glory of of war. In Matthew 24, Jesus is walking. I mean, he's on the precipice of, of uh, going to the cross. He's about ready to be uh, uh, captured by his own enemies, 
falsely accuse, and he'll go to the cross. But before this, before this uh, he has a final teaching, a final uh, kind of, um, here's kind of what you guys can expect to come in, uh, ahead of you, because there's going to be suffering and pain before there's really the, the glory of Christ. And so we're, in chapter 24, he's walking amongst these gorgeous buildings, particularly the, the temple, uh, the temple that was built by Herod the Great, who was a king in that region at that time. And the disciples are walking, and they're marveling. It's saying that Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them and said, You see these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left here, one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. What Jesus is saying as his disciples are glorying in these, in these, uh, these buildings, he's saying the powers of this world will not last. You see, the temple was the epicenter of religious power, of sociopolitical power, of nationalistic pride. And the disciples' hearts, just like any Jewish man or woman's heart, would be bent to say, look at our glory. Look at us coming of age. Look at us establishing ourselves amongst this place, this region. And we know just a couple hundred miles away was, was Rome. And Rome and its buildings, with its Caesar, and its glory, and its power. And these powers are always trying to call men and women to give their heart to that power, to give their life to the establishment of that throne. What Jesus is saying is that it'll, all these powers will come to an end. Right now we're in the throngs of, is it America, is it China, is it the left, or is it the right? And what Jesus says is that in the end, every power, earthly power that rises, falls. Every earthly king or queen comes to an end. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't put your hope in the powers of this life, but put your hope in the power of my power, which will rule and reign in the, uh, in the end. You see, as the world grasps for power, as our world grasps for power, our king subversively establishes his throne. As our world is grasping for power in this lifetime, our king subversively establishes his throne. As I said, he's about ready to go to the cross. He's about ready to die at the mercies of his own enemies. But we know that it's through that death that the resurrection comes and the establishment of his true kingdom, his eternal kingdom. And so the big idea this morning is this, that Jesus is coming again to take his rightful place on an eternal throne. That is a fact. Jesus will come again. He will take his rightful place on an eternal throne. And because, as those who have put our hope in him, because our future is to actually reign and rule with him, let us live like it today. That our future is to rule and to reign with Christ. We have an eternal inheritance in his kingdom. And so let us live like it today. And so we're going to take a look at a, a passage of Scripture that kind of teases this out. It's a teaching of Jesus, like I said before, the very end, the very next chapter from uh, chapter 24. We're now in chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus says this, When the Son of Man came, comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left hand. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and come visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers or sisters, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and, the, and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of one of these, you did not do it unto me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those are the words of our Heavenly Father, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus tells us a couple of different things about the end of days, when he will come again, and what is going to happen. I've got four observations for us this morning that I kind of want to draw our attention to of what Jesus teaches us this morning. The first is this, that you have been loved from eternity past. That you have been loved from eternity past. I know it's probably a little bit of an oxymoron to say both eternity and past, but I just want to draw our attention to this. That Jesus says to those that are blessed that an eternal kingdom, an inheritance in, 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 in an eternal kingdom is prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That Jesus says of you, of you, that he has known you from the very beginning. And from the very beginning, when he was thinking about establishing his eternal kingdom, that he had you in mind. That you weren't an afterthought. You weren't a late addition. But you are part, you are a part of his eternal purpose of establishing his kingdom and you have a place there. We all want to be wanted, right? We all want to be thought of. I mean, the thought of someone ignoring us or someone overlooks us, it's devastating. And no matter how we might be perceived in this lifetime, whether people notice us or recognize us, it doesn't matter. Because the king has recognized you from the very beginning. That Do you realize before he even began to create the universe, whether it was tens of thousands of years or billions of years ago, before he began to establish the universe, he had you in mind. He knew you and he loved you. You see, we can only love that which we know. Like, I love my kids right now, but I've only come to love them once they were born and I got to know them. I mean, prior to my kids being born, my wife and I would talk about our future kids, but we only loved the idea of them. We didn't know them. But God knew you before you were born because he fashioned you together. And from eternity past, he had a place for you in his kingdom and an inheritance for you. That's an incredible thought. That's an incredible truth for us to latch our hearts onto, that we were loved by the king from the very beginning. We have a place in any inheritance in his eternal kingdom. That's observation number one. Observation number two is this, 
that you are assured of future victory, that you have assurance of a future victory. We all want to be on the winning side, right? We all want to cheer for winners. My kids love Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson, not because I'm wanting them to be a Kansas City Chiefs fan or a Ravens fan. That's actually quite gross to me. I want them to be a Bengals fan. But the Bengals aren't winners. Patrick Mahomes is a winner. Lamar Jackson's a winner. My kids gravitate towards these people, these great athletes, because why? Because they win. We want to be winners. We want to see the, receive the glory of being winners. I'm, I'm not a marathon runner. I'll never run a marathon. But I've been at the uh, finish line when I've had friends who've run marathons, and I watch them cross the line, and you see them get the big foil thing draped over their shoulders and, you know, the, the metal over their neck, you know, the power bars at the end to kind of refuel themselves, and their face, their whole body just kind of basks in this sort of glory of finishing the race. They've accomplished a great thing. It was incredible agony. There was incredible suffering in the middle of it, particularly from what I've heard around mile marker 20 to 23. But in the end, they received the glory. They experienced the glory of the accomplishment. I mean, if I were to like make a race and you just want to experience the glory of the race, well, then I would have a start line and 100 yards at the end, have you finish. We can all run 100 yards, cross the line, get the big foil thing draped over ourselves and get our medal and feel really good. But you know that's not the way it works because the amount of glory is in, somewhat, uh, is in some relation to the amount of suffering that is endured. That those who run true marathons endure a great suffering. But when they arrive at the end, they experience the great glory of the victory of accomplishing what they go after. The Bible speaks of what the suffering that we have in this life is momentary affliction. That we as believers will suffer in this lifetime. We're not pursuing worldly rewards or worldly treasure. We're pursuing a treasure that we're waiting for for eternity. The very first sermon that we took a look at, we took a look at John the Baptist, one of the greatest prophets to ever be spoken of in the scriptures. John the Baptist had incredible ministry. He was faithful to live his life for God, and yet his life ended being beheaded at the hands of his own enemies, at the powers of this world. But John's hope wasn't in, in, in a treasure, a glory in this life. It was a treasure in the next life, which is assured to come. As Christians, our history, our heritage, is not that the strength of our faith has been in how much money we have, the endowments that we have, how many famous people believe the same things that we believe, or how big our churches are, or how glorious our structures are. The strength of the Christian faith has always been in its ability to endure affliction. The Christian strength, the Christian faith has always been, been one or has grown in the midst of persecution. In fact, some of the places where Christianity thrives is where it's most persecuted by the powers of this world. And that's true for us, even though that hasn't been probably part of our heritage here in America of the last several decades, but that is true. The church's markings and its ability to endure suffering, why do we endure suffering so well? Because we know that we're not living for a treasure on this earth or victory in this life. We're living for a victory and a treasure, a hope and a glory in the next. And that one is assured. The Son of Man will come and will sit on the throne. So if that's true, my third observation then we should be eager for future rewards. 
So if that's true, that we will gain an eternal inheritance, we'll see Jesus face to face as he says here in the scriptures, well then we should be eager for future rewards. That the things that we do in this lifetime matter. And that they in some way, they reflect and prepare us in anticipation of receiving eternal life. That the things that we do here prepare our hearts to receive an eternal inheritance. I coach all kinds of different sports. Baseball, soccer, football, wrestling. And I always tell uh, those that I'm uh, coaching, my players, how you practice is how you will play. How you practice is how you will play. Meaning, practice is mundane, it's boring, it's, it's not overly exciting. There's no victory in practice. But the victory is when you play. You take that ground ball and you throw it to first base and the guy is out at first. All that time of practicing, picking up a ground ball and making accurate throw, the mundane routine of doing it over and over and over again, the reward is given at the end, right? It's given at the end. Jesus says in Revelation, Revelation is at the very end of Scripture. It's some of the last things that our Savior uh, is quoted as saying in the Bible. It says this. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense, recompense, which is rewards, with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus has a supremacy. And when he comes again, he will reward those who are faithful servants of his kingdom. Now, let's get something straight. We kind of addressed this last week, but I want to address it again here today. Are we talking about justification through works? What, what gives us right standing before God? Is it these works? Do we, have to feed, uh, do we have to feed the hungry, clothe the poor? Do we need to visit those in prison in order to have salvation? The answer to that is no. Our justification is based on the merits of what Christ has done. Jesus, in chapter 20, verse 28, says this, just a couple of chapters before this teaching. He says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That Jesus gave his whole life to purchase us from death and sin, from evil, from the powers of this world, into his kingdom. And so it is his payment through his death and resurrection that buys us into a righteous relationship, a righteous place before God. We are justified, theologically, we are justified before God because of what Christ has done. But justification is different, um, different than regeneration. Regeneration is now the work, the work of Jesus having its, its effects in my life and in my heart. And so if I've been bought from death into life, from unrighteousness into righteousness, into the powers of this world and the power of his world, then my life will begin to change. That that which I anticipate with my life, that that which you anticipate with your life in eternity is what you will generate here on this earth. That which we anticipate in eternity is what we will generate here on this earth in this lifetime. So if I anticipate if I anticipate seeing Jesus face to face and be rewarded for the things that I do in this lifetime, then I am eager for those things to be produced in my life in this time, for me to live those things out. And what's beautiful about this is that there's no small thing that's done in this lifetime. I mean, Jesus isn't saying anything glorious here. He's saying, do you see a brother and sister in need? Give to that need. 
it'll be acknowledged. Do you, do you see injustice in this world? Do you meet that need? Is there someone that needs forgiveness? Do you extend forgiveness? It will be rewarded. That all the small things that we do in this life to advance his kingdom will be recognized, will be rewarded, and will endure. Every small thing that we do in this lifetime, Jesus will recognize, reward, and it will endure from this life into the next. And so for you, when you consider your life, and there's someone who has wronged you, a brother and sister who's wronged you, it's been a great offense. You're forgiving them is ushering in the kingdom of heaven in our life, amongst our people. It's no small thing. When you sacrificially give, generously give to a brother and sister who has a need, it is no small thing. You're bringing the generosity of our Savior to bear in this life. When you build a marriage or family upon the gospel of grace, you're building the community structures that will exist in the kingdom of heaven. When you as a single person Choose to put your hope not in a love in this life, but in the eternal love with Jesus Christ. You're saying to all of us, all the church, that we have one true bride. That's Jesus Christ. When you choose to lay aside your own personal biases, your own political opinions, to hear another brother and sister, to understand them, to love them, to be unified with them, you are proclaiming the unity of the kingdom of heaven. When you pray to Jesus, Jesus, your kingdom come, you invite Jesus to make realized his reign here on earth. There is no small thing done in advancing the kingdom that does not recognize, reward, or won't endure in the end. So let us live it out today. I come to my last observation from this text. Number four, that you can bask, that you can bask in future glory. We love being, right? I mean, some of us love the sun. We want to bask. We want to soak up the rays of the sun. Some of us love walking through nature and just basking in the songs of the birds. Some of us love holding babies. We love the smell of new life. And we just take these things in. We take them in. We allow them to wash over our hearts. We allow them to, to grip us. And what Jesus is saying is that we can be gripped by his glory. We can be gripped by his throne. We can marvel and bask and enjoy and take in his supremacy and his power, his love, his peace. The gospel is a fountain of life in the deserts of worldly prosperity. The gospel is a fountain of life in the deserts of worldly prosperity. It is true. In this life, the worldly powers appear to be prosperous. They win. They, they gain what they want. They gain position. They gain wealth. They establish themselves. They rule and reign. And that's, that's a tension for us. In the Psalms, there's places where the psalmists are beside themselves talking to the Lord, Lord, how can the wicked succeed in this life? How can, how can, how can good appear to be losing? And sometimes we are, we are caught in these momentary times of, wondering how it is. And we're deceived into thinking that, these, that worldly prosperity has the final say. But just like an oasis in the middle of a desert, once its resources are sapped, it's just a wasteland. So it is that worldly prosperity, it runs its course. All of these pathways to worldly power, they run their course. America, 
won't be great forever. Nor will China or any other world power. And this person who appears to have power in this life, their time will fade. And so what are we treasuring in our heart? Are we treasuring the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we treasuring his rule and reign? Because to us, that is a fountain of true life. It's a fountain that will never end, that will never dry up. And in fact, its true glory is yet to even truly fully be revealed. I have a friend who this past uh, week, two weeks ago, got like one of my dream cars. And so he was showing me this car and I was kind of salivating a little bit. My friend was just saying he was super excited to get this car and that he really, uh, really has enjoyed it. But he said once he got the car, he just felt like the Lord was not, not giving him peace about possessing it. He was recognizing within himself that he was loving the prosperity of this life over the prosperity of the Lord. I mean, yeah, there was nothing wrong with having the car. But he sensed in his own life that he was gravitating towards the, towards the, the, the treasures of this life and not the treasures of Jesus. So he's selling it. He's getting rid of it he doesn't want that to take root in his heart. As we end this, end this series, we must ask ourselves, which kingdom do we treasure? Whose rule and reign do we treasure? We cannot both treasure the powers of this life and the power of God. We can't treasure the love of this world and the love of God. We cannot treasure in our hearts the things of this world and the things of God simultaneously. So what has gripped our heart? What is our future glory and hope? Let us put it and fix it on Jesus, who is the one true, sure king who will establish his throne, and let us allow that to generate new life in us to live today. Let me pray to end us. Jesus, we come before you and we ask this. Establish in our heart the truth of your kingdom. Establish in our heart the truth that you are the Son of Man that will come again. Lord, I confess that I buy so easily into the powers and the prosperity of this lifetime. They can capture my heart. I can find myself so easily deceived into pursuing them. And yet, Jesus, you call me not to those ends, but you call me to the end for your kingdom and glory where I'll be able to rule and reign with you. Every single one of us, Lord, we take great hope that you have a place for us in your kingdom. You have a significant place for us, that you've thought of us and you've intended us to rule and reign with you. Would you show us, open us our our eyes to that kingdom and how we can live it today. Amen.